This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 423 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products and Total Saddle Fit. This is Karen Abatista from Sarasota, Florida, and with me is Tim Christensen from Iaca City, Florida. And you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show. We have got a great episode in store for you guys today. We talk with trainer Marsha Hartford-Sapp, who recently won her second straight Extreme Mustang Makeover competition. We also are going to chat with Chris Cosma, who's the inventor of the Home Horse. And once again, Jack Aristotle Ballou returns with her total saddle fit tip of the week, which is exercise 21 from her book, 101 Western Dressage Exercises. And Tim, before we get started, um, I do want to get a Western Dressage Association of America update from you. But before we do that, I need to ask you a question. How do you know if you're really and truly crazy? Because I'm kind of thinking I crossed over the edge. I was sitting, you know, you know, we're horse people, right? So uh-huh. the question is, are we crazy because we have horses or do horses make us crazy? Because I was sitting in a waiting room last week. Now, first of all, I might be crazy because it was a waiting room of this very kind of exclusive animal hospital. And I'm there with my 25-pound sulcata tortoise. Yes, I have a pet tortoise. His name is Socrates or Socrates, if you're into Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. And Socrates needed surgery. Now, it's kind of hard to find somebody who's going to do surgery on a tortoise. So I found an exotic animal veterinarian at Blue Pearl Animal Hospital. And Blue Pearl's clientele is a little bit out of my league. So here I am in this waiting room and I have got my tortoise wrapped in a beach towel and I'm looking around and sitting next to me on my left is this woman with her little tiny fluffy dog in her designer carrying case and her hair is perfect and she smells pretty good and her clothes are clean and pressed and her nails are manicured and her Face is perfect, and I kind of have one of those moments of self-awareness where you kind of see yourself the way other people see you, and pretty sure I hadn't brushed my hair yet, and there was some hay in it, and my shirt had carrot slobber stains on it, and I might have had makeup on in the morning before it melted off my face, and I'm pretty sure I still had horse treats in my pockets, which were bulging, and I smelled like a combination of fly spray and my hands are stained with copper tox and gentian violet. And to make it totally, totally icing on the cake, I had gotten stepped on by a young horse. So I have two broken toes. So I have two different shoes on. I've got a 
a black sneaker that was Sam's, my husband's, on one foot. And I've got one of my shoes on my right foot. And I kind of think, I'm crazy. I, I have gone crazy. And I smile and I look at the lady to my left and I say to her, I have horses. And she smiles and she goes, uh-huh. I know. <laughs> so anyway, tell us about the Western Dressage Association of America because we're gearing up for a great 2017 World Show. Yes, we are. You know, first, Karen, I don't know if you're crazy or what, but you know, sometimes I think we're just so fortunate that we really just get to live in our own world and our own little horse world and our own barns. And sometimes it's just a good world. And maybe <laughs> the public doesn't see it that way when they see us as we venture in or from the bars. But yeah, you know, that's just when we kind of just come out of our world and enter their world. But sometimes I just think, you know what, let's just stay in our world because it's fun and it's, the animals are great and we get to ride. And so we just have a unique world. But <laughs> on to the Western Dressage, the world show. I think that um, exhibitors this year are going to really see a lot of it. There's so much excitement, so much enthusiasm. Um, I'm on a couple different committees there and I'm kind of new. So I kind of look at this year as I'm just kind of absorbing and learning, but I know that the committees are working very diligently of getting sponsors. Um, they've got some great sponsors coming on. Um, there is a, 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 a new video company that's coming in that's going to be videoing um, the arenas and they're very reputable. They're huge in the hunter jumper world. And that is going to be a huge addition. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I know there's a lot of talk about at the end of the day, there's some, you know, the, I don't want to say after parties, but I know that when there's awards presentations, I think that they're seeking um, like the wine and, and cheese sponsors and, and cocktail sponsors for, for the, for the evenings, that type of stuff. So just great things are in store. Um, I know we're awesome. working on the worst presentation. When do I believe entries, they, entries, the entries are out there right now. If you, you can go to the association, you can download the entry forms and they begin taking entries on July 1st. And it's a first okay. come first serve basis. Um, so, but it, it's, it's a great, it's just a wonderful time. It's at the lazy E arena. Um, it was interesting. I had this last week at the horse show, I was talking with a few people and they had, you know, wondering, you know, what was it like? What did you think of it as it moved from Tulsa? And it was just a great venue. And mm -hmm. I think that by the end of the show that the lazy E and the Western dressage association, the world show had kind of cultivated in its own flavor. So I'm really looking forward to it. And I think people are just going to have a great time this year. Awesome. So, well, I know I'm looking forward to it. So without further ado, let us go to a message from our sponsor. And when we return, our interview with Marsha Sepp. He was her first love, the one that started it all. He taught her how to master the posting trot and navigate her first hunter course. They spent hours together exploring the trails and hanging out in the barn. His name was doodled on every page in her school notebook. His coat gleamed in the sun as he met her at the gate each day, snuffling for a treat. From the first time she saw him poking his head out of the stall to the last time she patted him goodbye, he was, and always will be, her everything. 
This love story is brought to you by Nalox Advanced, providing complete support for a healthy digestive tract, which reduces the risk of colic and digestive upset. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Call 859-873-2974 or visit kppusa.com to order today. And with us today, we have Marsha Hartford Sapp, head trainer at Southern Oaks Equestrian and winner for the second straight year of the row of the Extreme Mustang Makeover. Marsha, how are you today? Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you are welcome. I'm happy um, for you to ask me to, to be on the air with you. I'm doing great today. It is raining here in Florida, so the horses are having a little bit of a break this afternoon. I bet they're pretty happy about that. Uh, I see plenty of mud-covered coats. I think they're happy. <laughs> so, Marsha, I found out something I did not know about you when I was looking at your website. I did not realize that you actually started life wanting to be a lawyer. That is correct. So how did we get from law school to dressage? Well, when I uh, graduated from high school, I uh, packed up my little car and I drove to Tallahassee, Florida to start school at uh, FSU and my undergraduate uh, degrees, I had a double major, um, was political science and psychology with a minor in communications and I was going to go to law school and do some uh, lobbying for animal rights. Um, That was really my, my main focus at the time. Um, and I was working for the city and, and, and doing some stuff there for the city government, and it was a big interest of mine. Um, when I graduated from FSU, um, I, I had a little equine business here in Tallahassee, uh, and my husband was here. And the only school that I uh, applied for was FSU's law school, and I didn't get in. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is I'm a horse trainer because I didn't get into law school. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that was probably one of the best failures I've ever had. Well, that's I am very glad that you were a failure because you are an extremely accomplished horse trainer. So talk to us a little bit about um, the Mustang makeover. Yeah, so this year um, I did the Mustang Makeover like I have every year since 2009. It's an annual national event um, where trainers are given a randomly selected wild Mustang. Um, 100 trainers uh, pick up 100 horses and we have 100 days to train it. That's the the base uh, premise of the the competition. It's called the Extreme Mustang Makeover. Um, This year I drove to the pickup site. And my randomly selected uh, wild Mustang was a five-year-old Palomino mare, um, which we later dubbed Chase and Dreams, um, mm-hmm. named after my, my wonderful photographer, whose last name is Jason. Um, so the so Dream was the horse that I trained this year. Um, and this is not my first, second, or third <laughs> Mustang. I'm sure we're up there in the high teens at this point. Um, but we had a, a, great, a great year training, training the Mustang this year. And you also have some pretty amazing news about your other Mustang, Cobra. We do. Yeah, we do. And it's it's really amazing news. And it's like one of these childhood dreams come true. So in 2010, we'll tell you a little bit about this horse first. I picked up uh, my Mustang for the Extreme Mustang Makeover. It was my second uh, Mustang Makeover. 
And I got a very large, and when we say very large, the horse is 15'2". He's large in his own mind. Yeah, large in his own mind. Dark bay Mustang with four white socks um, that we dubbed Cobra after the Cobra Mustang. And I trained that horse for the Extreme Mustang Makeover, which that year was in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And, um, and the horse went to the competition, did really well. Um, I had a little error in one of my patterns, so I missed the top 10 by just a couple of points that year. Um, but I brought that horse home with me, decided he was going to stay at my barn and kept training him. Um, that horse went on to show uh, um, recognized, uh, nationally recognized dressage shows um, and has shown through pre-St. George, which is an mm-hmm. FEI or an international level. Um, and did real well, done really yeah, well. Yeah, he's earned you, know, you your medals, correct? Yeah, yeah. In in six months of showing, um, we got all the scores I needed for my uh, bronze medal. That's uh, showing at first, second, and third level. Um, and then we showed a year at third level where the horse um, was a national champion um, for the Adequate Allbreed Awards at third level. Um, and then the following oh. year, we showed at pre-St. George, um, and he got a national championship with the all breeds at pre-St. George. And I got my silver medal. Um, probably one of the only people in the world that's ever gotten a silver medal on a previously wild Mustang. Well, and, and actually uh, hold on one second, because it's not just that he was previous wild, previously wild. He was considered a three strikes horse, wasn't he? Yep. That's right. This horse came um, to me as a six year old. Um, yeah, and tell us what that means. Horses. So he came to me as a six-year-old, and um, we all know it's a little bit um, old to be training horses, and the horse had a four-digit brand on his hip. Um, and that happens when the BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management, deems a horse as unadoptable or a three-strikes horse. They'll deem a horse unadoptable um, for their age or for the fact that the horse has been offered for adoption three or more times and not selected for adoption. So Cobra was a three-strikes horse um, destined to go to long-term holding. He was not in the general population to be adopted. Um, but it was just his lucky day when his number was pulled for the Extreme Mustang makeover. Um, and he came to me that way as an unadoptable six-year-old wild horse. Yeah. And so now fast forward, we've shown pre-St. George. And we have also won uh, the USCF Horse of the Year title in Western Dressage, correct? Yeah, he was the uh, first. He's the first Mustang to ever get a USEF Horse of the Year award, and that's in Western Dressage. That same year, he won a World Championship title uh, and a Reserve World Championship title in Western Dressage. Cool. And so, now, and now, <laughs> drum roll, please, everyone. <laughs> this horse um, has been selected as a Briar Model horse. That, that is, is so cool. That is a dream, isn't it? Every little girl collects her Briar Horse models. Yep, absolutely. I remember as a little kid playing with my Briar Horses, the horses going in their stalls, in the barn, and they were very famous horses, Secretariat, Man of War, Olympic horses, um, you know, horses that went on to achieve, you know, great things, you know, that those are the things that, that kids sit in their rooms and imagine doing on these Briar Horses. And now this Mustang. You know, this Mustang, of all things, is now a briar horse. I think that is just wonderful. Um, so, I have another, one more, another question for you. 
Looking through your website, I know that you're certified in something called the aspirant technique. Mm-hmm. Yep. What is, could you talk to us about that? Yep. So the aspirant technique is uh, a, a writing aspirant, and training method. Sorry. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, a, a training and um, writing method that was created by Carol Rose in Maine. Um, she's a lady that I rode with when I was growing up riding um, in Maine. Um, and it's basically a least resistance method where uh, the riders use their body to balance the horses. They use the leg aids and use the shifting of the weight to balance the horses so the horses can be in self-carriage. Um, it's a little bit more of a French version of riding. Um, and the horses do so well in it because instead of balancing the horse through the reins um, or through pressure, we're asking the horses to travel in self-carriage, which creates more harmony. And I think that's the goal of all things dressage, correct? It should be. Yep, absolutely. Or it should that be. That is what dressage is. Yep. should be. So all with right. all the accolades, I have some questions here, and, I, and, and all the achievements that Cobra has done, what was it when you first met him or you first saw him? I mean, was he in a pen? Um, had he been touched? And, and tell us about the first, what do you do with these Mustangs if they've been untouched? And so, how do you get them home? How do you get them in trailers? How do you teach them to tie? Um, yeah. I, I find it fascinating. It, you know, it is, and it's, it's a daunting process, let me tell you, because it's step-by-step, step, um, and you can't miss any steps with these horses. When we pick up the horses for the Extreme Mustang Makeover, they have not been touched. They've never had a halter on. They don't understand pressure and release. And when we go to the facility, which is a, you know, a BLM-proof uh, facility that's set up for these wild horses, you, you have to have fences at home that are at least six feet high um, because these are wild animals. They will jump out. You know, we have wow. to have a trailer that does not have a ramp that has a step up. Um, we, we get to the pickup site and we back up to a series of corrals and the horses are ran onto the back of our trailers via chutes. Okay. And the horses are, yep, the horses are ran onto the back of the trailer. Um, for those of us that choose to, they'll put the horses in a squeeze chute and put a halter on them while they're immobilized in a squeeze chute in case you want to have halters on the horse, um, for when you unload them in the round pen. Um, you know, we drive home with them. Believe it or not, the horses ride great in trailers. I always pick up more than one horse so they're not alone. That way they're not scared. So I usually have uh -oh. two or more Mustangs in the back of my trailer. Believe it or not, they ride in the trailers great. I get home, I back up to the round pen, and we turn them loose in the round pen. Um, and then if I'm lucky, I'm able to <laughs> separate them um, so that I can start working with them individually. You know, I use, you know, what is considered a join-up method as far as the first touch goes. So I'll send the horses around, change directions, ask for them to speed up, slow down, um, and, and basically condition the responses so the horses join up or they come to me in the middle of the arena to allow touch. That way, it's kind of the horse's idea um, to interact with the human um, instead of it being forced. And it tends to, to be a little bit of a, you know, for me, it's a good way to start the relationship. Um, they, and like how, do, how long does that take from, from the time depends, they get home to the time you can touch them? Gosh, you know, it depends on the horse and they're all very different. I've had some horses that the whole join up process has take, taken all of 20 minutes with. And I've had other horses okay. that it's taken over a week. 
Okay. So, so it varies greatly by the horse and what their experiences were and how they took those experiences and, and what their assumptions of, of people are. They're all very different, just like, you know, just like normal horses. They all uh, have their own preconceived notions <laughs> about work and people, and some are more scared than others. Uh, some are aggressive. Some are friendly. It just really depends on the horse itself. The, the horse Cobra... When I brought that horse home and started sending him around the round pen, that horse charged me within five minutes of me being in the round pen. I mean, I scaled the wall of the round pen to get away from that horse. Um, But that was just the initial greeting. You know, that's how he would have treated another horse coming into his herd. Uh And we were, we were able to uh, create, create information to him to show him that I wasn't another horse and that humans were different than horses. So, and then when you typically, how long before you think, how long does it take then after that before you ride them? I mean, do you sack them out? What do you do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a whole series of steps that I have to go through. <laughs> like, the horses have to be halter broke. They have to be able to stop, change directions, and turn circles off of pressure of the halter. I have to be able to tie them um, in order to for me to feel like they understand pressure and release enough to to ride them. I have to be able to pick up all four feet because I feel like that's important. Them giving parts of their body. Um, I have to be able to saddle the horse. I have to be able to long line the horse. And that's something I really believe in, um, in my training program is long lining the horses or ground driving them is what some people call it. Um, having the horses move around the arena at walk, trot, canter, halt off of those long lines, change directions off of those long lines, teach a one rein stop off of those long lines um, before I feel like they're ready for me to climb on them. The process varies. I've had some horses that I've, you know, gone through these steps with and I've ridden them the second day out of the wild. I've had other horses that I've gone through the process and it just takes them longer to be comfortable and it might be four weeks before I ride them. So they're all, they're all individuals and they all have to um, check off the same checklist as the horse before. When you get to the actual competition, what's involved? Oh, the competition um, has a preset um, series of requirements. The, the Mustang makeover, you get to the competition and you have to show your horses in hand. So that means you walk and trot with the horses in hand. You have to be able to pivot and back them up, weave through cones, brush them, pick up their feet, load them on a trailer. Basic handling skills horses need to have day to day. We have to uh, set the horses loose in a round pen, show we can catch them again, um, basically do all of these ground handling things on, uh, you know, on the first day of competition. We then have a trail class that we do with these horses. Again, we're talking about a hundred days out of the wild. Some of the horses have only been under saddle for 60 days at that point, but it's a basic trail class, trot over logs, back through the letter L, open and close a gate, um, ask the horses to side pass, things like that. And then we have a riding pattern, kind of like a reining pattern where we show circles at all three gates, we do transitions, we back up, we spin or pivot, depending on the discipline. Um, so those are the requirements for the initial classes. After the initial classes are done, um, the trainers with the top 10 scores, based on the accumulation of the three classes, move on to the finals. Um, and that's a night show. It's an entertaining show that the public is invited to come to. 
um, where the trainers have to do a compulsory pattern, show walk, trot, canter, changes of lead, back up and spin, um, basically the, the horsemanship aspect of it. And then we're given a three and a half minute musical freestyle to show off our horses. And that's really the main, um, main component as to who wins those finals. So we can do whatever we want. We can. And this is all after a hundred days. This is after a hundred days. So we can ride our horses bridleless. We can chase a cow. We can do a dressage pattern. Um, some people jump, some people, um, do mounted shooting. There's a number of different things that we can do in order to show off the training and the individual horses. That is incredible. That is just so impressive. And then what, so what is the, after these horses are adopted, now obviously they probably go through the training program or this your particular training program, there's probably a market for them or there's homes for them. What happens to these horses and, and what happens to the adopted horses in general? If you can just kind of give us a little update on that, if you could. Yeah, you know, the exciting thing about the Extreme Mustang Makeover is all of the horses that are actually at the makeover competing are offered for adoption at the end of the competition weekend. So people come all weekend to watch this competition. It's very exciting, of course. And they can watch these horses all weekend, root on their favorite trainers. But if these people are interested in adopting a horse, they can purchase these horses at the live auction at the end of the finals. Um, so people can go home with a piece of American history that are, you know, these horses have received great training at this point. Um, so the horses can be adopted by, um, pre-approved trainers, um, pre-approved, um, adopters. They can be adopted by people who want to show them, who want to trail ride them, who want to take them home and have them be pets. Whatever it is you're wanting to do with these horses, they've had a good start, um, so they can go home and, and continue on what it is the trainer started with them. Um, my horse, Dream, um, who, who won the event this year, um, came back home with me for additional training. Her new owner lives in Tampa, Florida, um, and she'll be, yeah. you know, she'll be, a, she'll be a dressage and a trail horse um, for that person. Um, but the horse is able to continue training here at my facility um, to give her more time under saddle to get her ready for that next owner. Wonderful. And just, I was doing a little research before the show and, and pulled up that there's about 49,000 Mustangs still left in the wild. And it looks like their, their goals are to adopt down or to get those, those herds down to 27,000. So, um, over the next five years, if I remember what I read correctly. So this has got to be a pretty major endeavor um, or and, and promotion of what you're involved in as far as bringing awareness to the wild Mustangs. Do you have any any insight for us on the plight of the Mustangs or where things are at? Yeah, uh, you know, right now there's more horses that are in um, holding facilities awaiting adoptions than there are adopters. We're talking 47,000 horses roughly that have been rounded up out of the wild that need homes. That's a lot of horses. Um, and yes, you know, the, the extreme Mustang makeover has done a great job in bringing awareness to the talents of the horses and bringing awareness to what the horses are capable of doing. Um, but they've also done an outstanding job putting the horses in the hands of capable trainers that are able to train the horses in order to get them ready for the next step or the next home. 
Um, there's also a program that's called the TIP program, which is the Trainer Incentive Program, TIP. And that program um, allows qualified trainers to um, take home Mustangs, do the initial gentling, which is halter braking, picking up the feet, loading in a trailer. Um, and those trainers can find adoptive homes for the horses. They get, um, they get paid by the BLM to do the training on the horses and to find adopters. And the adopters end up, you know, adopting a horse for $125 that's already had all this initial groundwork done. It's pretty much a win-win for everyone. And in closing, Marcia, is there any particular story or any, any particular horse that you would just like to share with us that the listeners that we would find, you know, pretty memorable and pretty special? I think the winner of last year's Extreme Mustang Makeover, the horse named Freedom, was a very memorable horse for me. Um, that horse we picked up, again, another random draw. I didn't know what was coming. Um, I went to the Extreme Mustang Makeover with two students that I was um, helping. They were apprentices of mine. We picked up three horses that year, and my randomly selected horse was a gray mare that for some reason, I had shown up at the facility hoping that I was going to get a gray mare that year. Um, lo and behold, one of the few horses there that was a gray mare was the one selected for me. We um, we picked up the horses, three of them, brought them home. The next day in Florida, it snowed. Um, kind of a memorable thing, you know, here in, in Florida. And oh, yeah. Uh, yep. And, um, you know, that last year I was uh, filming running film for a documentary called American Hoof Beats, um, a documentary about the training of wild horses. Um, and this horse, you know, from the first day I stepped into the round pen with her, I could see the intelligence in this horse and her desire to have a leader, but also her desire to please a leader. Um, so that, that horse came from a herd in Wyoming. And I stepped into the round pen and started working with that horse. And that horse joined up after about 10 minutes, you know, fairly quickly. She really had a desire to be with me and to see me. Um, the training went great with that horse. Uh, we were slow, methodical, didn't, didn't pass any of the, the steps. Um, the, the horse, before she went to the makeover, was able to learn walk, track, canter, lay down on command, Flying lead changes. Um, and those of us that know horses know that's pretty advanced for a horse with 100 oh, yeah. days under saddle. Huh. I've got um, some with like 12 years. Wild horse <laughs> with 100 days under saddle. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, the day that I picked up that horse, I found out I was pregnant. And wasn't even sure that I would complete the Mustang makeover because of the obvious like safety considerations there. Um, but I, you know, I felt my way through it. I wanted to, to make sure that the horse was safe and that I could trust the horse. And I know everyone's thinking, oh my God, how can you trust a, a horse that's right out of the wild? But, you know, the horse was really that good, that intelligent and that trustworthy. Um, I took my time with the training, of course. Um, but the horse was really a remarkable horse that had a lot of spirit and drive behind her, a very wise, wise horse. Um, so that horse, I, I went to the Mustang makeover. She didn't take a step wrong all weekend. The horse was the winner by a landslide. And in our, in our freestyle, in front of thousands of people with lights and music, and, you know, it's this whole show, the horse came into the arena, did Spanish walk, got on a pedestal, saluted to the crowd, um, 
did flying lead changes. And then I took the bridle off the horse and I was able to ride this horse a hundred days from the wild in this indoor Coliseum with thousands of people. And I did bridleless flying lead changes with this horse. Okay, I mean, I've what a goosebumps. smart and remarkable horse. And go ahead. Karen. And where is she today? That horse ended up with um, another lady in Tampa. Um, awesome. She went home with she went home with a lady who's quite experienced and um, has two daughters who are riders as well. Um, the lady's been riding this horse, training her in dressage, cross training her in jumping. Um, the horse has gone out and she's won every show she's gone to, and is a really wonderful family pet that whenever anyone walks out and sees this horse, she nickers and says hello to every single person that walks in the barn. That's well, incredible. Ma- yeah. That's Marcia, a good you story. are truly an inspiration. If oh. any of our listeners want to learn more about you, your training program, your horses, the Mustang makeover, where can they access that information? So they can go to my Facebook page, um, which is just my name, Marsha Hartford Sapp. They can uh, look me up on Facebook. They can also go to the farm website, which is southernoaksequestrian.com to find out more information about the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has truly been a pleasure. Jen here, host of the Horse Tip Daily Show on the Horse Radio Network. The way consumers interact with the brands they have trusted for years and those they are about to fall in love with for the first time is becoming more and more mobile, literally, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Podcasts or internet radio shows like this one combine the new consumer preference for on-demand information and entertainment with the power of niche market audiences. Advertising on the Horse Radio Network podcasts allows you to reach the equestrian consumer using today's preferred on-demand delivery system. It's cost-effective and flexible, able to reinforce your existing marketing and social media strategies. To learn more about advertising on this show or any of the shows on the Horse Radio Network, contact us at 859-951-2022 or you can email us at glenn at horseradionetwork.com. That's glenn with two N's at horseradionetwork.com. Come and join the Horse Radio Network family. You'll enjoy the ride. And now we bring you Chris Cosma. Chris, an equestrian in his own right, is also the inventor of the home horse, a fun and challenging fitness tool. And I especially was intrigued by the home horse when I read an article um, that described it. Chris, you probably remember this quote as your gift to every school horse out there that works so hard to teach people how to ride. I thought that was fantastic. So, Chris, could you tell me a little bit more about the home horse, what it is, and how um, it came to be? Okay, I will, Karen. Thank you uh, for the nice introduction. Uh, in my family, which is a long-standing equestrian family going back I don't, many generations, there's an expectation that everyone 
rides and rides well and is able to compete, you know, in dressage and mostly combined training Mm -hmm. um, background. But we all came up with Pony Club and Gymkhana's. And when we were young, of course, America had a smaller horse showing community and Saturday was Western. Sunday was English. And within the English competitions was hunters, jumpers, Arabians. Um, and so you met everyone in the entire riding community and you all needed each other because we all kind of gathered hay together. You know, we did like everyone knew everybody. Mm -hmm. So as it differentiated over the years, of course, everyone started specializing. And I went from, you know, having a saddle seat instructor when I was six to a dressage instructor by the time I was 12. (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, working with Olympic riders that would do clinics in those days, that's how they made money on the off season because there was no sponsorship in those days, no corporate sponsorship. So we had a lot of really great clinics with, with Olympic riders from the entire English speaking world. So South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, England, and of course they were all majors and colonels and very strict with white gloves and very disciplined. And you never talked back. You never asked questions you just did what they said and then afterwards maybe they would let you talk Um, (laughs) and i saw many people dismissed from the arena just please come bring your horse into the center please dismount you're excused and it would be no explanation it was just you're excused because you interrupted them so i mean it's gone a long way from those days the main emphasis always was to develop a good seat. And now we know because we have people who analyze this kind of data that it takes approximately 10,000 hours in the saddle to develop a good seat, unless you're one of those, you know, one or 2% just natural riders who's just born to do it. Every, everyone else, we have to work. Yes. I'm one of those. So, I have to work people. So. I knew that, um, you know, I was in Olympic trials up until my mid twenties. And then I realized that it just was going to be a short competitive life into your thirties and maybe forties. And then you were out and I'd watch my mother teach and all the other professionals, you know, running around the world teaching. And I just said, you know, I, I did art on the side. And I was like, I'm just moving to New York and I'm going to be an artist. So I did. And I'm very (laughs) successful. I have art and, you know, big sculptures in Rockefeller Center and Empire State Building, you know, on Wall Street, London, all over the place. So what happened, though, is that I raised my children in New York City, which they only got to the farm during school breaks and summers. So they were at a disadvantage and worried that my mother wouldn't love them as much as she would if they were (laughs) really good riders. I came up with all sorts of ways to kind of keep them legged up, basically. So anything I could make that I could put a saddle on with springs or anything. So their little baby saddle, when they're two years old, they were on like the old frame spring horse frame with the springs attached to a log that I carved into a saddle shape. It looks similar to the home. Horse. 
and I strapped the saddle on. So then I was able to develop it as it got bigger into, you know, hooking it onto like a desk chair, you know, with five wheels so they couldn't tip over, but they could spring around and they could use their stirrups and they could practice their two point position. And they could then like really just get out of the car and my family's farms in Ohio. So they could, we could drive six hours from New York and we could get out of the car and they could get on a horse and they would be legged up. They would be ready to go to a show, right? Because you're, you know, there's all, every week. So basically you cheated. <laughs> no, I found a way. Improvised. Improvised. Improvised <laughs> because, you know, there was family pressure. Um, yep. So, um, and I have a lot of, you know, fabrication skills as an artist. So I work with lots of materials and I'm kind of up to date on the latest technology for, you know, cutting steel and all the new rubber technology. Uh, so there's, you know, in my brain, there was like, oh, I can use that for this and this for that. And pretty soon I was putting together like the, the little rubber base that it rides on. And that I can guarantee for the life of the owner, because that rubber has been used in industry for a long time. It won't hurt your house floor, but it works in the barn. It can be on a manure aisle floor without any harm to it. And you can hose it off and bring it in the house and it won't hurt your, your house. So I had this material knowledge and I tried to put those two things together to develop, you know, like a little better version as they got to be older. And then one day I was working on like a very big sculpture and I was on my knees, you know, doing kind of final texturing and I was 75 feet long. So I had a long way to go and my knees were killing me. And I said, ha, I have the little kid, the kid's little horse trainer, which was, you know, I don't know, two feet high at the time. So I went up to their room and I, in the, in the studio, they have a little like store playroom and and I took it down and I sat on it all day working, rocking back and forth. It was so small. My feet were on the floor, not on the platform. And at the end of the day, I just said, this is amazing. I feel fantastic. Like, <laughs> like I could feel every single riding muscle. And as I watched the kids at the farm with the riding lessons and my parents moved more into hunter jumpers. So you could see that this, as the saddles developed and they were like really I mean, we rode with, with lasers and, and Hermes, like pared down, no, just a piece of leather on the horse. Right. And we did cross country with that. We did dressage with that. That was a sign of a good rider. No, no knee rolls, really. No, no, nothing on the flaps. No, no roll back and for your, the back of your calf, nothing. And now I saw these kids going around the jumper and hunter rings with these giant cushy saddles. And it's like, what about, I mean, who's teaching them? They're not really learning to ride. They are just sticking on a saddle on a little push button horse and doing a pretty round. Mm -hmm. So we used to, to have to do jump offs bareback. Some of the early McClay classes, you'd have to do your jump off without a girth with your saddle. Um, so oh my, you, go, you only, guys were old school. <laughs> and only in the three days. Of course, Tim you know, does that, but he forgets to girth his saddle. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, 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 when I showed younger, we had to switch horses. So I get what he's saying. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I take these to IEA and I, 
HSA competitions with the schools, you know, high school and college teams. And they, they just draw horses. So I bring four or five. I warm all the teams up, bring the coaches up and, you know, I set it up in the arena so they can watch, but they, you know, above the arena. So, you know, usually so in Lexington and Kentucky. Works. Well, um, it's it's basically a you know a saddle on a hemisphere, and it works your long core. And according to doctors, it works. Um, it combines the core muscles, the abdominals, the pelvic floor, and the b- obliques, and it works balancing and stretching. Um, the hip abductors and the way it works is it engages your core in patterned co-contraction. So as you go around, you can watch or feel each muscle group going through your core from your abdominals to your obliques, contracting on their own without, it's not like an isometric. It just happens with the circular motion. Now that just builds an amazing amount of symmetry in the body. And to prove it, I always bring scales with me to shows. So I have two scales and I ask everyone to just stand on them before they get on and not look down. So someone else reads the scale and the difference in up to 15 years old is maybe a pound. The difference between 15 and 18 is five pounds. And after 18 years old, it can be 30 pounds. Wow. I mean, ride, these are riders. I mean, this is at like Rolex at, at the Kentucky horse park. I mean, and it's like, I always have trouble. My, my left stirrup leather is always stretching. My breeches wear out on the left. My saddle needs reflocking all the time on the right. Most people because most humans are 95% of us are right-handed and all other mammals are equally left and right hemispheres. So we, since our, our left hemisphere is predominant because of language, almost all of us are right-handed. And by the time we're adults, we really can't support a left-handed horse. Mm. It's very difficult. And half of our horses will be not, not our handedness. So it's uh, really important for riders. They struggle. When I put them on, I can see exactly the home horse never lies. It's just, you cannot trick it. You get on, you try to go in a circle. And if your back left obliques are weak, you cannot push it down in the front on the right side. And if your whole back is weak, you can't push it down in the front. And if your abdomen's weak, you can't get it down in the back. So I can tell within two or three rounds exactly where people are strong and where they're weak because I need to give them a little clue to get a little more centrifugal force when they're strong in the areas that they're strong to get kind of glide through their weak zone. But even gliding through activates it with these pattern co-contractions. Now, this was not my intention, uh, you know, to do this. It was a happy accident because the OTs and the PTs the physical therapists and the occupational mm-hmm. therapists have pointed out that this is the only machine that can work the back obliques. There's no gym machine or anything that can do that. And a lot of trainers in college programs try to go 
to the gym with their riders and find exercises that can help them because they have the gym close by to their, their riding program and they have the kids on campus. But for most riders, there's very few trainers that go to the gym with their riders. And when they do, there aren't a lot of machines that directly like, enhance the riders, like the, the riders needs really, which are symmetrical muscle development. So if you're stronger on your right and you go and you do, you know, any kind of pulling or lifting or, you know, you, as soon as you start to fatigue, you're depending more on your strong side. So you might get stronger overall, but you are not changing the symmetrical, like your asymmetry in your body. You're just stronger and more asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. So what this does is it allows Sort of, I always see it as an unwinding, like a clock going back to when you were 15 and you were perfectly symmetrical. Because I really weigh thousands of people. I go to shows all the time and I make people get on the scales. They're horrified. But I promise that I don't add it up. And it's just for their horse. <laughs> I've only had one refusal. And the lady one said, of I the things that I really thing. liked, Chris, is you actually have... A bridle attachment too and you can have the riders practice using their hands and you can help them create new muscle memory without overtaxing the horse right i mean the savings on shoes and muscle and oats uh to learn the basics i don't know you know drummers use a drum pad all wind players usually start with a recorder. We start right on the horse and make the horse go round and round to learn these kind of basic things. And then there's no practicing because a lot of kids are not growing up in a country atmosphere with their ponies in their backyard. They're going for lessons. So this mm -hmm. exponentially increases the value of a riding lesson. If you have one of these at home and you can practice, I mean, just imagine if you're you know, taking piano lessons and you didn't practice and you came every week, your your, your teacher would dismiss you. It's like, you aren't practicing. I'm not teaching you. So for most people, it's, you know, 30 minutes or an hour of lesson. And then they come back. And even if they have two lessons a week, they come back and they're maybe a minute advanced. They haven't, they're not a half hour advanced because they're starting over again to sort of relearn and re-coordinate I mean, we have some riding students that were, you know, timid and it took five years to learn to canter because there's just no way for them to practice because they didn't have a horse and they were afraid. And so their confidence that was just nil. Now that person, now she's in her fifties, but she has a home horse at home and she's just like, it made all the difference for her for riding. So well, I uh, can tell you that my school level. horses are going to thank you. I, I, if, you know, if there is a heaven and there's horses there, I definitely want an in. <laughs> <laughs> what is the cost so. of it? <laughs> Pardon me? Yeah. And where can well, what we does find it? Cost? it? Uh, the home horse classic is the basic uh, home horse with the neoprene exercise pad. So, you know, you can wear kind of any clothes and it won't slip. Um, it's eight forty nine, and if you get them at a show, you can get it without the shipping. Um, generally it costs, 
you know, $79 to ship it most places in the U.S. And Canada is a little bit more. Australia is a little bit, you know, it's, it's like $200 to ship it to Australia and about 150 to ship it to England. Um, and then with the bridal attachment, you can get that, um, for a, a special, it's a home horse deluxe with a bridal attachment. And that comes as a single rein or a double rein, um, setup. So you can, you know, for a lot of dressage riders, it's very difficult to learn to use a double bridle while everything else is going on. So they, this way you can practice at home. And what I've found when I'm at a show, the trainers come with their students and they work with them. And since they can be 360 degrees around them and be like eye level and, you know, manipulate them, we can stretch their legs. We can work on their position. We can get their hips where we want. Uh, we can get their hands where they want. They can learn contact, you know, steady contact while in motion. So it's a great tool for instructors to sort of, I mean, the exclamations from instructors is, this is what we've been working on for six months. And now you finally got it. So now when you get on, this is what I want you to do. Because the outside hand and the outside leg is generally invisible to the instructor. Even if there's mirrors, you have to be obliquely looking in the mirror to see that the outside. And so there's a lot of fudging from the rider saying, Oh, I did that. I didn't do that. I didn't pull. I didn't cross over. I, I had my leg back, you know, and it's not generally true because the horse would respond differently, but for the instructor it's just like, Oh, okay. You know, you can't, you can't be there on that corner to keep them, you know, keep that left hip forward on a, on a left circle so they can support their horse. But on this, you can show them exactly how to do a canter, how to keep that left hip engaged, you know, and you can do a nice oval from one o'clock to seven o'clock. If, if the circle of the home horse base is a clock face. Um, our listeners know if they want to learn more about the home horse, that they can go to www.homehorse.com, correct? That's correct. This week's dressage training tip is brought to you by Total Saddle Fit, home of the shoulder relief girth at totalsaddlefit.com. Hello, it's great to be back. And this month I have stabilizing muscles on the brain because I myself just got back from running a 60K trail race in the Arizona desert. And it went really well. Um, but it reminded me just how important uh, stabilizing muscles are so that uh, we're able to move efficiently and free of injury. And the same is true of our equine athletes. So with that in mind, I recommend that for the next couple of months during their warm-ups, your listeners might try exercise number 21 from my book, 101 Western Dressage Exercises. And this is called Snake Over Poles. It's adapted from equine physical therapy programs that I've studied. 
And what you do is just take as many ground poles as you have access to, and they don't need to be fancy, and you can set them up pretty much anywhere that's level on your property. And you place as many ground poles as you have uh, in one single long line so that they are touching end to end. And then you ride your horse in a nice brisk walk on a long rein in a tight, tight serpentine looping back and forth and back and forth across the pole. As the horse steps out away from his body uh, to cross the pole obliquely, you're really recruiting the thoracic sling of muscles in his chest, which is uh, important in part for cushioning his movement in the jog and the lope. Uh, those are the muscles that support the horse's trunk and help him pull weight out of his forehand. And also, um, there's a lot of sensory nerves running through those muscles down into the front limbs. So it increases the horse's uh, spatial awareness of where his front legs are and improves agility. You're also targeting the horse's pelvic stabilizers. And as we all know, uh, before we can create beautiful, harmonious gates with our horse, it's very critical that the horse's uh, joints and skeleton uh, are stable so that the limbs can swing freely to create good movement. And we certainly don't want the horse uh, wiggly or wobbly in his pelvis or dropping a hip, um, all these sorts of things that can crop up. So activating the, again, those small postural muscles that play a role in stabilizing the pelvis will start to trickle out into all the other work that you're doing with your horse. And the rewards are, are very um, measurable from this simple exercise. So ride through it and have fun. And I hope to hear how everybody does with this. Total Saddle Fit has the cinch that you've been looking for for your Western dressage saddle. The shoulder relief cinch actually changes the position and angle of the billets to prevent the saddle tree from interfering with the shoulder. The center of the cinch is set forward to sit in the horse's natural girth groove, while the sides of the cinch are cut back to meet the billets two inches behind where the horse's natural girth groove lies. This brings the latigos from angling forward to becoming perpendicular to the ground, which reduces the saddle's tendency to be pulled forward into the shoulders. With horses that have shoulder interference without angled billets, it simply moves the billets back to keep the saddle further away from the shoulders. The secondary benefit to this shape is the cutback at the elbows. This gives more room for elbow movement as well and prevents galls in the elbow area. You can find the shoulder relief cinch at totalsaddlefit.com. That's totalsaddlefit.com. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on the website at dressageradio.com. Like us on Facebook, just search for Dressage Radio Show. Follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. My website is karenabatistadressage.com. Abatista is A-B-B-A-T-T-I-S-T-A. And my email is karenabatista at gmail.com. And my website is Training for Life. That's training, T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G-F-O-U-R. L-I-F-E dot com. And my email address is T Christensen, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N, 
62 at gmail.com. And we want to thank our sponsors, Kentucky Performance Products and Total Saddle Fit. Don't forget to check out all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network at horseradionetwork.com. And remember, it's all about the journey and enjoy your ride.